On today's show, we have Andrew Farris, CEO of Ecognosis Advisory. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. And we also have Pooja Malik, partner at Nippon Capital. Good morning, Pooja. Hi, good morning. So let's start, as we seem to have done all week, with China. The 31-point plan announced yesterday focused largely on the private sector, which seems like a U-turn from the last few years. Is this something that's going to work, or are we going to continue to see more stimulus packages going forward? Andrew? Uh, the question of whether it's going to be a work, it will work, it's perhaps a little bit unfair and unfortunate, because the plan just announced is simply a list of desiderata, a list of what the government would like to do, but uh, there are, to my best reading, and I read it several times, and incidentally, it is not just uh, the 31 points, it is three completely separate sets, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, there is no specific indication of uh, specific policies and the timing. So on one hand, it uh, signals that the Chinese government is clearly concerned about not the deceleration of the economy, but its flat overall performance and plans to do something about it, both on the state and on the private sector. But then it hasn't told us anything specific. Incidentally, the plan consists of three separate sections. One was an overall announcement about uh, overall macro targets. The second was a very specific announcement on consumer spending, which included certain things that were quasi-specific, such as spending more money on cars and on electronic equipment. And the third part was a, a reiteration that uh, the Chinese party and the Chinese government uh, will promote assiduously the performance of the private sector in uh, the developmental and recovery period of the Chinese, uh, uh, of the Chinese economy. So we had three separate, very interconnected plans, all of them very interesting, very useful in terms of expectations, but I'm afraid with uh, zero specific plans, zero specific uh, uh, policy tools and instruments. So Pooja, do you think, as Andrew said, there has been three specific plans, obviously there's an 11-point plan on the consumer side, the private sector yesterday with 31 points. Is this a sign of desperation? Is this something that's needed? Or was this always part of the game plan for China? It is probably something that was needed, but like Andrew said, it didn't go far enough. The government also last week you know, extended an olive branch when they finally resolved the situation with Ant Financial and Alibaba and stocks rallied, but as you saw, it was a very short-lived rally. So investors are looking for the government to resolve uncertainty on, on three big fronts. One is revising consumer spending through stimulus or other means. The second is the support for the property sector. Because remember, you know, pre-COVID, property accounted for 60% of the GDP growth that we were seeing in China. So given that that's completely collapsed, it's hard to see how growth revives without the property sector coming back. And the third is this geopolitical issue, which, again, there are early signs of its softening, but the relationship with the U.S. and the trade barriers that have come out over the last three years, investors want to see some cooling on this side before they get back into China. Okay. I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing the private sector now seems to be back in focus. But this is after three years of almost, I wouldn't say trying to decimate the private sector, but after really trying to cool things down over there. 
So is it a realisation that the last three years' policies are not working and, OK, let's try and do a U-turn? And if that's the case, is it too late or or is it never too late? Andrew? Now, let's uh, get one thing right, I'm afraid. There has been no attempt to decimate the private sector. There was an attempt to control, and of course it punished them financially, one part of the tech sector, and that was the application of, uh, of IT technologies on e-trading, on the social media, on, uh, on gaming, and uh, uh, parenthetically, although this was not part of it, uh, the elimination of the private tuition sector. But, for example, the specific companies making uh, tech goods, okay, like Huawei, were not touched at all. So the government took uh, a rather uh, narrow view on certain performances or certain, uh, let's say, developments in the private sector and, uh, and promptly uh, stepped in. Uh, so I don't think there was an effort to decimate the private sector. It was an effort to control certain areas, particularly the ones that they were politically sensitive, of course. Okay. Now, again, I'm afraid the question, has this worked? Uh, has it worked in a sense that it shrank uh, Alibaba and Tencent and so on? Yes, it did. But this has nothing to do with an effort to expand the economy. This was something very specific on the private sector. Now, since there are no specific policies concerning the private sector in the three-part announcement that has been made, it will be equally, I suspect, unfortunate to say, well, this is not going to work. And somebody will tell me, what is it not going to work? And I will be able to say the measures they haven't yet announced. Can you see it's good? I'm trying to be very fair. I must admit, I don't particularly like somebody says, we're going to do some very exciting things. And then I say, oh, great, what are these? And I don't receive a message of what are these and when they're going to be applied. But then my job is not to advise the Chinese government. It's simply to reflect on, uh, on what is actually going on. But wouldn't you say that, that, I mean, the focus really is going forward and trying to stimulate the economy is on the consumer sector. Um, but you need all parts of the economy working. And here you are, you turn around and said that, okay, we've cut tutors, we, or tutors allowing to charge at least, You've, we've cut DD work, uh, workers and a lot of the gig economy, we've cut pay and finance. You're not going to get consumers coming back, not to mention the fact that real estate's coming down too, right? Yeah, but consumers, in fact, are being limited on how much they will be able to come back not only, I'm sorry, it is a dog chasing its own tail, not only because of the flat performance of the economy, but even for me, much more importantly, and I'm afraid I'm sticking out. You know, I don't believe in a, in a, in a single number uh, uh, sort of direction that tells you everything about the economy. But given that for nearly 14 to 15 months now, the index of the newly developed and sold homes in 70 major Chinese markets has been actually shrinking, not falling, has been growing negatively. Uh, it must it must do, it must concentrate people's designs uh, very, very wonderfully. So it's not uh, surprising that spending has been come back. And also because I observe the tourist sector very closely, because that reflects directly back to Hong Kong, is there has been quite a boom in domestic tourism. In other words, 
uh, Chinese economy, Chinese uh, consumers are not spending money, and we know we can see that they are not spending money in going overseas, and particularly in Hong Kong, and they are limiting their good time spending on domestic tourism, which is perfectly all right and understandable, and this is good potentially for the domestic economy, but it is another signal that they are reluctant to open up their purses. Now, why they are reluctant to open their purses? There are quite a lot of numbers of items that would be, that can be and are actually involved. So, Pooja, uh, I, I assume that's a, lo- a lot of the reason why people aren't uh, spending is because of confidence. Um, is that being reflected in the markets as well? I mean, we saw yesterday the markets did not react too positively to the 31-point plan. But what are the what's the overall sentiment over there? The overall sentiment on China is one of caution. You know, we have been investing in China ever since the Connect program opened up, which was maybe eight years ago. And um, you remember there was a time when foreign investors were very enthusiastic on China, and well, the tables have turned completely. And this is a reflection of the issues that foreign investors are seeing in the near term, in the medium term, and in the long term. So starting back from the long term, you know, the demographics have become now a big issue against China and Chinese growth, which was actually in their favor 15, 20 years ago. And that's something that more and more U.S. investors are concerned about. You've also seen the numbers in terms of youth unemployment. And so I would say long term, the China structural growth story is there, but I think it's weaker than it was 10 or 15 years ago. The medium-term horizon, I think the geopolitical issues and, and the Taiwan situation is definitely on the minds of foreign investors. And the near-term, you know, it comes down to the issues you discussed, which is consumer spending, but more importantly, also corporate earnings. We're not seeing the revival in corporate earnings that we were expecting last year when the end of COVID was announced. So stepping back, you know, for, for, for foreign investors, both the fundamentals, which is the earnings picture, is weak, and Sentiment is weak, too, because of these geopolitical issues. And that's why we haven't seen foreigners investing in China in a big way this year. So you've got the demographic issues you mentioned, but you've also got deflationary issues. So, But yet yes. you still think that the growth story is okay for the longer term. So you don't necessarily envisage this being another Japan then? No, no, I do not envisage it being another Japan. I think the government has much more influence in China than the Japanese government had in Japan. And they have many more degrees of freedom, even though, you know, there is a debt issue going on in parallel as well. I think the growth looks interesting, especially in relative comparison with the rest of the world, because, you know, the, Europe is slowing down. And the U.S., of course, has been very strong, but I would say it's been far ahead of expectations. So as investors look ahead and look for global growth, definitely in the long term, China is a positive, right? Even if it grows at 5%. That's still a big number. So it's definitely an economy of interest. It's something that is on every investor's radar. But the sentiment has changed, and it's just not, you know, you're not seeing the flows as you were three years ago. Okay. So, Andrew, I mean, we touched on China deflation, but there has been global inflation elsewhere. So do you think that Chinese deflation will start spreading across and start filtering into the economies that will bring down the lower uh, or lower inflation globally? Actually, no, uh, for for a number of reasons. First, the uh, Chinese, uh, well, as you call it deflation, rightly, the, the CPI has been growing incredibly flat around and trend between zero and few decimal points, few BPs, okay, as opposed to 
as let's say the American one that came down all the way from uh, nearly nine down now to three percent. Okay, and uh, this can and could be reflected on export prices. Now, remember, deflation should have been simply meant that the Chinese are selling overseas their goods at a lower price. And this just doesn't seem to be the case at all, because if it was, then it would have definitely be affecting the export performance. And the export performance has been very poor because it's driven not by price competition or a relative absence of price competition, but because of the overall drop in aggregate demand overseas. So for China to export its deflation, basically has to export. And uh, that it is not doing it. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Of course, it's exporting. But uh, the rate of growth of exports has dec- decreased significantly. And of course, also, this doesn't help, or it would not be helped for this story, is the fact because that the renminbi has been exceptionally weak uh, for several months now. And that, of course, in a way, makes Chinese exports cheaper. And therefore, you could argue that this would be exporting its deflation as long as it was exporting something. Sorry, it was a little bit convoluted argument, but uh, I hope I'm passing this through. That's fair. And, and Pooja, just to end, um, are you seeing the weakness in China starting to filter through into the emerging markets? I know in the past they've been pretty coupled, but um, I think recently we've seen a bit of a divergence. So how are you seeing the emerging markets play against China? markets this year have seen a huge amount of div- distortion and case in point is Taiwan which is now up 20% for the year you know in the first half of the year so um, there are a lot of things going on in emerging markets most notably the AI tech semiconductor story impacting stocks in Taiwan and Korea India itself has been a very different story as well and the weakness in China often translates into strength in India as a result of foreign foreign flows moving away from China into India I think the region where we are seeing some impact is South Asia. So the economies of Thailand um, that have always been more susceptible to investment from China, I think we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown there. But besides that, as you've seen, Latin America has continued to do very well, as has the Middle East. So I would still say we're seeing limited impact on the rest of EM. And in fact, the rest of EM is being more driven by global factors or by more domestic factors and the impact of China seems to be less than, than you would have expected. All right, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. So I'd like to thank Andrew and Pooja for coming on today's show.